So yeah, if, uh, I encourage you to get the, the text, whether a printed copy here or you can uh, subscribe and, and get it online. You can download it at bible-sermons.org and then you'll have all the cross-references in the text as well. And reading those as you go through it will give you a whole lot more out of the message. Today we're in our last church, last of the seven churches in Revelation, uh, the church of in Laodicea. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Revelation chapter 3 from verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, that, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You may be seated. So of all the letters, this is probably the one that people are the most familiar with um, because you've either heard a message on it, it's preached on quite a bit, or you might have memorized that verse, chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, again, from verse 14, and the angel to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So let's start by looking at this lo the location of the church. We saw with Sardis that the location had a lot to do with the message that was given to that church. Laodicea was the final and southernmost city on that circuit of the letters to Asia. It was just 10 miles east of Colossae, the city to which the letter to the Colossians was written, and six miles north was Hierapolis. And the city was named after um, the wife of the founder, Antiochus II. Her name was Laodicea. We know from the record uh, com uh, of the confiscation of the Jews' temple offering that there were about 7,500 Jewish males in the city, but then there are also women and children that lived there. So there may have been as much as 20,000 or more Jews living in that city. 
It's interesting that in the Talmud, that is the Jewish civil and ceremonial law and legends, it warns of the lax way that the Jews lived in Laodicea. It's just one of many historical documents that back up exactly what scripture is saying. The city lay on an important trade route and had become a prosperous banking center. It was famous for black wool, as well as for uh, eye salve that was sold uh, for around the known world. This is one of Jesus' introductions that doesn't draw, like the last one we saw as well, doesn't draw from those self-descriptions in chapter 1, but it does come from the description of God in the prophets. The amen means the sure one, the trustworthy one, and the truth. Isaiah 65, 16, God is called the God of truth. What he's about to announce to this church is absolute truth. You know, we, we hear things in scripture that, that doesn't sit well with us. We, it kind of irritates us or bothers us. And however, it is true. The word of God is true. And when we hear those things, we need to let it change us. We don't change it, it changes us. No amount of justification on our part is gonna change that. We are the ones that must change. We frequently hear from our culture today that there is no absolute truth. That is one way of denying belief in God, the God of the Bible, who is ever the same and outside of time. Truth is not up to what you or I may believe, it's the reality of an unchanging God. Jesus is the last word. What he declares is true and nothing we can do will ever change that. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true though everyone were a liar. Paul tells us that, that the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And that's the same way as expressing amen. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. You can see that connection of truth and yes when you consider that everything God predicts is going to happen without fail. His words are not speculation, they are true and yes, they have and they will come to pass. Next, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Jesus claimed that he did only what he witnessed the Father doing. He's the faithful and true witness of the Father's heart and of the Father's work in the world. And as he speaks to the church, they should pay attention because Jesus only judges as he sees the Father judge. What he declares about this church and what he offers them is beyond question. And remember, that word witness is the Greek word martus, from which we get the word martyr. His death and resurrection shout faithfulness and truth. And finally, he declares that he is, let me use the Greek word here, arche. He's the arche of God's creation. That doesn't mean that he's the first thing 
that God created, as it kind of sounds like in this translation. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the very same Word that was incarnated in Jesus. A better translation here for us to grasp the meaning would be, he is the origin of God's creation. As other texts confirm, he's the instrument of God's creation. It was to the nearby town of Colossae that Paul addressed this issue of Christ being the creator. Beale, however, believes this is pointing to the expression of firstborn from the dead, meaning the beginning of the new creation. He's the inauguration and of and sovereign over the new creation. Some of Jesus' introductions are in those letters were a bit frightening, but this description didn't forewarn the recipients of what was coming. In fact, I, I wonder if they were maybe kind of self-assured and, and um, thinking that God was gonna commend them for all the wonderful works they were doing. So the next verse may have been quite a shock to the listeners. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Like many of the letters, Jesus declared he knows their works. In some cases, he commended those works that that particular church was doing. In others, it was to say that their works had no life or were incomplete. Here it's to say their works are distasteful and apathetic, which is the very worst kind. Doing comes out of being. They looked good, but they were apathetic and insincere. The water supply for Laodicea ran underground for some distance, and this made the water lukewarm. The nearby town of Hierapolis had wonderful hot springs in which you could soak in and relax. And Colossae had this spring of refreshing, cool water. But the water of Laodicea was neither. Jesus used this as an illustration of how he felt about them. It wasn't sadness or joy. It was more like revulsion. Every time they took a drink of water, they would be reminded of their tendency towards that condition. It was the wisdom of God to use that. We need something that continually reminds us of our tendency to lose our fervor and zeal. I believe that's one of the purposes of communion, to remind us and to stir our hearts again. I, I was wondering if Jesus wrote us a letter, what would he use to remind us continually? Um, I'm not sure I got the right answer, but I thought maybe to remember the blood that he shed for us as we see the red rocks. You know, every time we look at our red rocks to remember the blood of Christ that paid for our sins. The church called itself Christian and was supposed to represent the life of Christ in that city. But when the church blends in with the world, 
I like to use the expression, it inoculates people against receiving Jesus Christ as their savior. They don't see any difference. When there's no sacrificial love for one another or desire to reach the lost or passion to spend time in the word and prayer, there is no life. Nothing that attracts people to ask us about the hope that they might see in us. That's because we don't exhibit that hope. The church was not about to die like Sardis. It was dead. We don't know if it had fallen into intellectual Christianity or doctrine without a personal relationship, but we do know the Holy Spirit-led works are evidence of life, and their works showed no life was present. You can go through all the motions of what Christians are supposed to do and yet be repulsive to God. That's important for us to understand. Being a Christian is being in a relationship with Jesus and letting his life flow through us. It's not striving to follow a list of do's and don'ts. The letter kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. At times, the spirit is refreshingly cold, mountain stream of water that's invigorating, and other times it's like that hot spring that you can relax and let the strain lift from you. But he's never just ordinary, yucky, lukewarm. When your Christian life does not have that zing of the spirit, the excitement of what's next, the overflowing joy of Jesus surprising you, then you've settled for something less than the life of Christ in you. Now, there are times when, when we struggle, we go through trials, we go through difficulty, but we come out of it on the other side because we're his and because we love him. The spirit is never lukewarm. He can be hot or cold, but never lukewarm. You know, I've heard in the past and sermons preached and I have even, I think, taught before that hot represented blatantly evil and cold was godly or vice versa, but I don't think that's the point here at all. There are different expressions of the life of Christ in different churches. And you can't put God in a box and write out the pattern of the perfect church. But one thing is certain, the godly church is never just lukewarm. The real Christian life should never be lukewarm. When you find yourself just kind of doing the same routine day after day to do the Christian thing, just shake yourself out of it by spending time in God's presence, singing his praises, listen to a fired up sermon, or pray for God to stir you up. You know, read some of the Psalms in which David cried out to God to stir up his spirit. God, who is loving, holy, and perfect, created you to be a part of his eternal temple. He's making you and me into the bride of Christ. He'll perfect what he started. And despite all we've done or failed to do, he still loves us so much that he died in our place so we could be with him forever. His grace is so wonderful, his love is so unselfish that it staggers our minds. 
He has plans for us that are over the top. They're so hard to believe. How can you be lukewarm about that? How can we just go through the motions if we really believe that? And how can communion not bring tears to our eyes? How can a testimony of a transformed life not make us want to sing for joy? And how can God's intervention in our lives today not put an ear-to-ear smile on our faces? Lukewarm? No way. Not if the life of Christ in us. Look at Jesus. He's spending the night in prayer. He's bursting with praise when the disciples come back and tell him about their victories. He's making a whip to chase out the defilers of the temple. He's crying over Jerusalem. He's the friend of tax collectors and sinners, the healer of the rejected, in the face of the Pharisees, patient with his disciples, passive towards his persecutors, witnessing from the torturous cross, patient with his disciples, victorious over death. He was hot at times and he was cold at others, but he was never lukewarm. And if his life is in us, then we will not be lukewarm either. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. All hail him as our matchless king through all eternity. Wake your soul up and sing with the angels. I I know the world can overwhelm us. I felt like that quite a bit this week. But then we look beyond this world to the eternal reality of Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. One glimpse of him through the eyes of our spirit and lukewarmness turns to zeal. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here is their problem, a problem we are all too familiar with, prosperity. Boy, this is not the prosperity gospel. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit. These who are content with this world's goods don't realize how great their needs are. Prosperity can dull our hunger for the things of God. And it had dulled those in the church of Laodicea whose spiritual condition was utter poverty. What they had an abundance of in the physical, they had none of in the spiritual. Their contentment with the physical realm deadened their spiritual hunger. That's why much of the third world is experiencing a large number of conversions while the Western world is just dying spiritually. Though this church is the only one for which nothing good is said, though they were inoculating people against Christianity, Jesus offered them a way out. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
This is the only place in the letters where Jesus says, I counsel you. He introduced himself as the true and the faithful one. Are we listening to his counsel? When do we turn or where do we turn for counsel? Is it the tried and tested counsel of God's word or do we turn to those who have good ideas? His counsel, God's counsel, is the only counsel that will speak truthfully. His counsel is by real gold. Now I know a lot of people are buying gold right now because of inflation, but Jesus is telling us there's something much more important. Gold is representative in the Old Testament of what is holy. All of the inner part of the sanctuary was of gold. Once you passed that outer gate and you came into the inner part, everything was covered in gold because it represented being in the presence of God and only purity and holiness could represent him. So he wants us to have a holy life, a life that's righteous, a life that exhibits his life in us. The city was the commercial center and prosperous, but not in the true sense of prosperity. They were told to buy white garments to cover their nakedness, that is to put on Jesus and be clothed in righteousness. He should be our life. Others should see Jesus as we live in him. There was plenty of wool in the city, but most of it was black. They were to be noticeably different. They were to anoint their eyes with ISAV so they could see. Now, they sold ISAV to, to the world, but they were spiritually blind to their own condition. Jesus was challenging them to see as he sees, to look through his eyes and see their true condition of what is truly of value. Can we see our true spiritual condition? Are we willing to see as God sees it? You know, in the end of one of David's prayers, he said, search me, O God, test my heart, see if there's any anxious way in it, and lead me in the way everlasting. We all need these same things. Some of us are getting ready for that financial collapse by buying gold or silver, but what we really need is the spiritual gold of holiness and the gold of God's word in our hearts. We have a wardrobe, but too often we're spiritually naked for we haven't been walking in the righteousness of Christ. Maybe we have LASIK or contacts, but we can't see what's eternal. We need to lift our eyes from this world and see Jesus in his glory, and then we will see what is truly important, the real needs around us and the will of God in those situations. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus was not just being harsh, his love was sharing what they truly needed. 
in a way that would wake them up. They were like the Pharisees who thought they were spiritually well off. These are the ones who need a stern warning or they won't listen. They were encouraged to get zealous for the things of God, shake themselves out of their apathy and change their values. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Boy, that verse is so often used for salvation, but here it's talking about restoring a relationship, letting Christ renew the relationship you have with himself. Jesus is saying, look, here I am. I want to be in your church. They met together, probably knew all the doctrines, but Jesus was not in their meetings. Here he invites a relationship, but it begins with being willing to listen to his voice and respond. And that's where it all begins. He'll take it from there. He will continue to speak if we will listen and, and share our heart with him. But when we're not living what we have already heard and learned, or, and we're set in our ways regardless of what he will say, we find he is graciously silent. And why is that grace, that silence grace? Because he doesn't want us to be more accountable than we already are. If we cherish iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. You know, mealtimes in that age are a time to sit around and enjoy one another's company. I remember one time I was in the Valley of Elah where David killed Goliath and we went into a local restaurant and uh, there were tables uh, in these little rooms and they were low and around them were couches and a, a bunch of Arab, Arab men were laying on the couches around the table just like they ate in Jesus' day, just laughing and having a good time sharing with one another. That's what Jesus wants to do with us, to just get together with us and talk with us and then share our life with him. The invisible guest at our table should always be Jesus. Do you hear his voice? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Or have you wandered so far you can no longer hear his call? Have you been dining with him? Do you take time to listen and have a heart that's willing to respond by opening the door and inviting him to search your heart? This knocking needs to be heard by the church, by every unbeliever, by you and by me. We need to open the door to our Lord continuously so that the following promises might be ours as well. And now for that promise, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We conquer by being in the victor, Jesus. The conquerors at Thyatira were promised to rule the nations. 
Now, this sounds similar, but also adds the intimacy of sitting with Jesus. All these promises are greater than anything we could conceive, and they should make us want to sing. They should fan the flame of passion for Jesus who would destine us for such undeserved greatness. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we really hear? Do we hear how our wealth can be a snare to distract us from the things that are eternal? Do we hear the invitation of Jesus knocking at our door, inviting us to have fellowship with him? Will we respond by taking the time to open his word and let him speak to us? Take time to be still in prayer and listen to hear what he would put on our hearts. He's knocking. May we all have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to each of us personally, right where we are today. May we be willing to receive that loving correction that he offers us, having a godly mindset, his challenges, and the promises that give us hope. This is the end of the letters. And next time we're in Revelation, we'll return. Uh, when we return, we'll be going to the throne room of God. Liz, will you close us with a song, Jill? And then I'll give the benediction.